Hi, I'm Bruce Barteau, the chaplain here at Kim Ray, and we are doing a series that I have called Foundations, and today we're going to look at another uh, lesson in that series, so let's jump in. All right, this week we're going to start off by looking at the last slide from our previous lesson and focus on the two little green lines over there on the right-hand side where it says, you know, walking in the newness of life by faith and the life I now live. What does that look like? How do we live the life that God created us to live? Uh, there's a lot of speculation about how to do that. There's a lot of ideas people have offered over the years. Uh, some of them are pretty good. Some of them seem to be what I would call the world system, sort of that's been Christianized a little bit. Uh, some people like to take bits and pieces of the law and try to make that rules to live by, kind of good, um, good ways to do things that sound biblical. Uh, then you have things like uh, wisdom of the world, you know, a stitch in time saves nine, and um, Confucius and the different things people over the years and the ideas that they've offered. But Christ came and did a lot of things. And we looked at the timeline for our human experience and how God created us with a purpose, if we look at that slide again, and, uh, but that purpose got distorted at the fall of man when man chose to sin. But Jesus came, he lived uh, among us, he was crucified on our behalf, and he was buried and raised and seated at the right hand of God. And how when we receive Christ, when we believe in him, it says we're, we're crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him, and seated with him. And now we're living a new life. But like I said last week, he's really good at it, and we're not so much because we're just getting started like an infant that's born with legs but can't walk and a voice but can't talk. And so he's teaching us how to live life the way he lived life. So the first big point I want to make this week is that Christ is our example. This Bible says that he lived a life, basically that we were created to live, and now he's teaching us to live that life. But it's, if you remember a few weeks back, I used a little flashlight to illustrate a point. And that point was that the flashlight had all the parts, but without a battery, it was powerless to do what it was created to do. So the power had to be put in. We talked about how in Romans, it says that you receive power, verse, chapter 1, verse 8 after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, you will show the world what they need to know about me. You will testify to the world about me. In 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, it says this, for to us, I mean, excuse me, for to this you have been called, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, continued entrusting himself to him 
who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. All right, so he came and gave us an example on how to do this. Now, there was a movement a while back. I actually wore one of the bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I think that's kind of a cool idea, and it, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, what a lot of us did was we got the impression that I need to figure out what Jesus would do if he were here and try to do that myself. And a lot of people even took that verse about following in his steps, and he left us an example as, well, we can read about what he did in the Bible and try to duplicate that now ourselves here on planet Earth. But it's really not that. It's, it's a life that we live by obedient faith. It's a life that he has created us to live in conjunction with him. Just like the flashlight without the battery was powerless, but with the power in it, it could shine what it was created to do. We, with Christ living in us, now have the power to shine. You know, and he said, you're the light of the world. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter. One translation says, finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When he looked forward to the cross, Jesus saw all that that would entail. And one of the things that it would do to him was cause him to feel shame. Okay, any of us would. If we were being humiliated, beaten, he was probably not clothed, paraded through the streets, probably naked and beaten to a pulp, dragging a cross, ultimate humiliation, mocked and teased and made fun of, eventually nailed to that cross and left there and hung there to die with people standing around below him jeering at him. You know, you believed in God, show us who you are. You said you're God, come down from that cross. And they teased him and everything else as he was dying. Well, the term to despise the shame, in our day and time, we have a tendency to use the word despise to mean we really hate something, we loathe it, we, we have a very strong dislike for it. But the word despise actually means to hold with contempt, to consider of little or no value, to look at it with as nothing. So when he looked at the shame that he was going to face, he decided not to let that shame control him. You know, if you're held in contempt of court, you don't let the court tell you what to do. He tells you, the judge tells you to sit down and be quiet, and you stand up and start talking you're in contempt of court. Or if you don't show up when you're supposed to, you're in contempt of court. You're not allowing the authority of the court to control you. So despising is to hold something with contempt, to not let, if you will, the authority of the shame you feel control how you respond in the situation they're in. Okay, so Jesus set us an example. He showed us how to 
go through life and not let the things we feel that are real. We don't deny that we feel shame or humiliated or rejected or any of those things. The Bible talks about all those things that Jesus went through, and so did the apostles and the different disciples we read about. But he showed us how, we, how do we go through that in a way that God created us to. How do we address those things in those real-life situations that we all face? And we're tempted to look for a way out, a way to deal with it that would make us feel better but wouldn't necessarily glorify God or reveal his nature and character. So again, it's like he's teaching us how to walk by faith, which leads to obedience, leads to doing things the way God is doing things, not the way he would do it if he was here, but doing it the way he is doing it because he is here. You know, Jesus said some things about why he did what he did and why he said what he said. In John 5.30, it says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All right, so he says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. I let the Father show me how to do this. Remember, that sounds a lot like the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done, he told his father. So right there he says, I don't do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he didn't dream these things up on his own. He didn't come up with a plan and initiate it all by his lonesome. John 8, 28 says, Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. All right, so even the words he spoke, he only spoke what his Father taught him to say. Also in John 8, 42, it says, Jesus said, I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. The very fact that he's even here wasn't something Jesus initiated. You know the verse where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? It was God's initiative. God said, the Father said to the Son, I want you to go and live this life and be sacrificed on their behalf so that they can be with us. And he did that. Also again in John 1249, he says, For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. So you see that Jesus didn't do or say anything except what his Father instructed him to do and say. Now there's a key to this. You know, I, I, I tend to resist those ideas that, you know, what's the one thing that makes it all happen? Well, I believe Jesus told us what it is. What did he do that enabled him to live his life in such a way that he only did what the Father was doing and wanted him to do and only said what the Father was saying and wanted him to say? In John 10, 
17 and 18, it says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So his Father, if you will, gave him permission to do one thing of his own initiative. And what was that? To lay down his life. You know, if, if I work for someone and they want me to do something, it's their initiative, they give me an assignment, but I kind of think I have a better idea and I resist their initiative, their idea, and use my time differently, then I am not, if you will, living by faith in that individual, trusting that that's what I need to do with my time. Okay, well, Jesus showed us that if I'm going to actually invest my time the way somebody else wants me to, what I have to do is lay down my life and what I want to do with my time and my resources so I can invest it in what they want to do, what they want to say. And in this case of God, the Father, His way is always perfect. It's always right. It's always best. It's always motivated by love. It's always motivated by what's best for everybody, me and the other people I'm involved with in life. In the end, when I walk that way, when I talk that way, when I do the things and say the things that he is initiating and giving me instructions on how to do, then everybody benefits from that and God is revealed. That's what it means to glorify God. He, his character, his nature, his love, his kindness, his compassion, those things are revealed when I lay down my ideas and go with his ideas. Now, in the case of Christ, it's really interesting. It's easy to look at me or you or anybody other human and say, well, of course you need to lay down your life. Uh, you're not perfect, but Jesus was. When he said, not my will, but your will, when he said, I didn't come to do my own will, I came to do the Father's will, he didn't say that because his will was rotten, you know, flesh-driven and ungodly and sinful. He had a righteous, holy, perfect will because Jesus was righteous, holy, and perfect. And so when he basically said, not my righteous, holy will, Father, but your righteous, holy will be done, he is demonstrating that it's not about, we don't know what we're doing, although most of the time we don't, and he does, it's about his way is always divine perfection. Now, that may sound unattainable, but it's actually really simple. Being kind to someone, being gentle with someone, self-control. But the key to doing that is what Jesus told us right here. Lay down our life instead of living it in order to take up his life and live that by faith. Well, how do you do that? Well, Jesus gave us another example. He told us about it, how he did it. In John 14.10, it says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Right there, he's beginning to reveal this whole concept 
of someone living in someone and the life of the one who lives in us is the life that's being lived through us. See, Jesus wasn't even separate from God. God was in him. You know, the Bible says God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Right? So Jesus wasn't down here on his own, hoping to please his Father who's up in heaven. The Father was in him, and he was in the Father. And so that's, that's, that's something that is simple, but it takes a while to develop the ability to hear, if you will, to sense. A lot of it involves things like reading your Bible. That's a good thing to do. Why? Because we learn about God. We, we see the things he would do and the things he wouldn't do, the kind of things he would say and the kind of things he wouldn't say, the risks that he would take in order to deliver truth to people who didn't really want to hear it, but because he loved them, he wanted to deliver it to them because he knew that would be best for them. All right, so how does that happen for us? Well, you know, a few weeks back, we looked at that little chart where we used to relate to God on the outside, but now because the Holy Spirit has moved in, he's inside us, we now relate to God on the inside. The Spirit lives in us and through us the same way the Father lived in and through Jesus. We just looked at that. In John 14, 16 and 17, it says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Okay, the word another, when it says he'll send another helper, it means another of the same kind. There's different words in the Greek language for another. Another could be another of a different kind. You know, I used to write with a pencil, but I got another writing instrument. Now I use a ballpoint pen. That'd be a different kind. But Jesus said, use the word that means another of the exact same kind. He's going to send you someone just like me. And who is the spirit that lives in us? Well, it's the spirit of Christ. Another place says it's the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, which is the Father. And so they're all one, so in a way it doesn't really matter. It's the Spirit of God living in us. And that gives us the equipment, the battery on the inside, the power source to live like Jesus lived. He said, it's the Father living in me who does his works. We just looked at that in Hebrews, excuse me in John 14, verse 10. All right, so let's look at another verse in John 14. He said, I will send the, the Father, I will ask the Father, he'll send you another helper. That's in John 14, but in John 16, he says this, verses seven through 15. I'm gonna abbreviate it a little bit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative. Does that sound familiar? Even the spirit does not speak of his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me. 
for he shall take of mine and disclose, shall disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine, therefore I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Okay, that's a lot of words. What does that mean? Well, when the Spirit comes, he's going to show us what we received as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Because God's, the Bible says right here, God took everything he had and he gave it to the Son. All right? And if you're a joint heir with Christ, then everything he has, you have. But we don't know what we have. <laughs> All right? So when the Spirit comes, he's going to guide us into truth. He's going to begin to unpack our inheritance for us. One of the things we inherited was love. Another one was joy. Another one was peace. Another one was patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. So he's helping us unpack all that we received. And that's not even an exhaustive list. There's wisdom. There's, there's all kinds of resources at our disposal because everything that Christ has is yours. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ if you're in him and he is in you. All right, so this life we now live, this walking in the newness of life, he is teaching us what that means. It's not, I look over there and I see something going on and I try to mimic it over here. What I'm looking at is actually inside me. And if you're a child of God, the Spirit of God lives inside of you and he is not God light. He is God complete. Everything that God is lives inside of you. And we have the ability to connect with him, hear from him, and follow him by faith. That's why it says, as therefore you receive Christ, so walk in him. You receive him by faith, you walk with him by faith. And what is faith? It's trust. If we go way back to the, I think the second lesson in this series, we talked about God is who he is, and we need to know him because we don't trust someone we do not know. And you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so as we begin to learn what God is like, who he is, what his character is, what kind of things would he absolutely do and what kind of things would he absolutely not do? What are those things? All right, so how do I do that? Well, there's a couple of words I could put in, the, in this spot. Yield, defer, surrender, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's not my will, but your will. It's in that moment when we have an idea of what we should do in this moment, but we realize the Holy Spirit is leading us to do something very different. Maybe... I'm a little awkward and embarrassed, and what I don't want to do is speak up. But he's telling me, speak up. Speak some truth into the situation. And then maybe my emotions begin to argue with me. And I don't feel like I want to do that because I'll be embarrassed, or they won't like me, or they'll reject me, or they'll think I'm stupid, or whatever. Okay, well, they thought and felt and said all those things about Jesus, and the apostles, and the prophets. So you're not alone in that, neither am I. Okay, so what does he want me to do? Speak up, what do you want me to say? Well, what would I say to them? 
In fact, if you listen real close, you'll hear what I'm saying to them. I've had it happen more than once when something got stirred up inside of me and I was going to really let somebody have it and I opened my mouth and blessings came out instead of curses. I'm going, that's not what I was really planning on saying, but something inside said, you know, what you were going to say probably is not what needed to be said, but the Holy Spirit wanted to say something very different and your voice box was the only one in the location at the time that could be utilized. Now, he doesn't do this against our will. I don't think he forces, there are a couple instances in the scripture where people, the prophet Balaam, he was going to curse the children of Israel. He'd open his mouth and blessings would come out. Uh, the high priest who condemned Jesus said it's expedient that one man should die for the country, for the nation. And then it says he didn't say this because he believed. He said this because high priest, he prophesied. The Holy Spirit came upon him and he just said what he needed to say, even though he didn't really want to say that. But most, I believe for us as God's children, he wants it to be a cooperative effort where he shows us what he's doing and by faith we choose to go along with him. We choose to surrender or submit or yield our will to his in that moment. And what I wind up doing is not my own initiative. What I wind up saying is not my own initiative. It's him living in me that's initiating it. And I'm just following along by faith. Well, next time we're going to talk about the things the Father has, has given to Jesus a little more in depth, which the Spirit will disclose to us as a joint heir with him. We'll go into that a little more deeply. But I want to finish with this last thing, almost like serving you some dessert for this lesson. You know, I've heard it said that if the gospel is a piece of jewelry, then Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is probably the setting on that ring. But Romans 8 is probably the diamond in the setting of that ring. When I look at the scripture, I see John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 that way. That that whole discourse, which probably took place in a couple of hours, takes up five chapters in the book of John. They're in the upper room and Jesus is talking with his disciples. And let's say that you know, God's plan is the jewelry. And that five chapters of the book of John, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are the setting of that piece of jewelry. But John 17 is the precious stone in the middle of it. Well, I'm going to give you a little taste of that today, and someday we'll talk about this in hopefully a lot more depth. In John 17, Verse 1 through 26, this is kind of some excerpts out of that. It's not the whole passage. It goes like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to, whom, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 14, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world might or may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Think about that. Jesus, talking to his father, said, I want the world to know that you love them as much as you love me. That's that's, that's just unbelievable. That's just hard to even begin to grasp that his love for you and I, the Father's love for you and I, is just as much as it is for the Son. But we're not in the world. We're not of the world, he says. You know, we're not on that Adam timeline anymore. Well, that's where he's taking us. That's what I call conformity to Christ in real time. You know, we're being made in his image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Romans 8, 29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, they be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. All right, so through new birth, we get the equipment. The flashlight has all the parts. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we now have the power to live that life. And what is that life? It's a life of cooperation yielding our will to his will in the moment so that the life you see me live is actually the life Jesus is living in that moment. Not what would he do if he was here, but what is he doing? Since he is here, he lives in me. Wherever I am, that's where he is. Well, we'll cover a lot more of this in the future. To me, this is the most exciting thing I've ever learned. If I had one message, this would be it that Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that was hidden through all the ages it talks about in the book of Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's literally someone living in someone. Well, God bless you, and let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your wisdom is magnificent, that you chose something so simple as dying to and paying our set off being raised so that when we believe in you, we die with you, buried with you, raised with you, and seated with you. And now we begin to live a brand new life because you, the one who is life, lives in us. And the reason it's eternal is the one who is life, who can never die, is our very life, and that's you. Thank you that as our Father, you are nurturing and training us and correcting us not out of disgust or disappointment. It says, you love us, that's why you discipline us, and you've received us, that's why you correct us, that we might share your holiness. Father, thank you that you have brought us into this, and that he that began a good work in us will bring it to completion, that none of us who are your children will be your first failure. You will not fail to complete what you've started in any of your children. Thank you. 
that we can learn to walk with you by faith, trusting you in the moment in such a way that when people look at us, they actually see you. Teach us more about who you are and how to trust you more deeply and walk with you more closely. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.